Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is part three in my Visit California mini-series called the California Innovation Tour. You might have listened to part one already with the brilliant author Ruth Whitman talking about The Pursuit of Happiness, her book. And also part two, which was with Megan Jones-Bell, the Chief Science Officer of Headspace. So if you haven't checked those out, do go back and have a listen. This episode is with the brilliant Taylor Jenkins-Reed, the New York Times best-selling author of Daisy Jones and the Six, one of the most hotly anticipated books for 2019. And it's just come out and it has hit the New York Times bestseller list and the Sunday Times bestseller list. And it's literally everywhere. Even Reese Witherspoon is turning it into a TV show with her production company, Hello Sunshine. So that will be on Amazon TV in the not too distant future. But I really enjoyed doing this mini series, getting to interview so many different California based guests, some amazing artists and pioneers and activists and writers. And Taylor was incredibly inspiring and we recorded it at the Mondrian Hotel in West Hollywood. There was the view outside the window of the Sunset Strip, which she talks about a lot in her book. It's set in the 70s. So it felt really amazing to be in L.A. interviewing someone who lives in L.A. and has just written an incredible book all about the nostalgia of L.A., So a big thank you to Visit California, who's doing some incredible things in the tourism landscape at the moment. So go and definitely check them out. If you want more information, if you want to go to West Hollywood or you want to go to L.A. or just California in general, then go to Visit California to check out their road trip content. And also visit westhollywood.com is also a great resource. Loads of info, travel guides, loads of content on there to inspire you to book a trip. And also their blog called California Now is really great. And they also have their own TV channel as well, if that's not enough for inspiration, called Dream 365 TV. So check that out. Hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes so I can make more content like this. Thank you so much for listening. And here it is. So I'm incredibly excited to be with Taylor Jenkins-Reed, the incredible author of many books. But today we're going to talk about Daisy Jones and The Six. And we're in L.A. We are. We're on the Sunset Strip of all places. Your book made me fall even deeper in love with the idea of California. And to be here looking at this amazing view with you is just amazing um i that makes me happy i've been in love with the idea of california my whole life and so now um furthering the myth seems to be um what i'm most interested in but yeah we are looking out onto the hollywood hills there's no better view in la is that hollywood strip still kind of the same do you do you know if there's still that real magic still there or do you think it's totally different now You know, I didn't really get to experience it until about 2005. Um, And here's what I'll say. From reading about it, and then I I actually used to live a block from here um, when I was cool. I'm not cool anymore. Now I live in the suburbs. But um, I think it's, I think there's absolutely still magic. I think it's a different type of magic. I think the same way that there's still magic in our music industry, but it's a different type of magic. Um, But look, like I haven't, Um, been to the Sunset Strip in a couple of probably a couple of months and even when I was parking and walking in I was like man this is Mm. this is this still feels like the place where magic happens and I feel like so many things you know do use nostalgia to like bring you in and I remember when I went to Palm Springs I went to this restaurant that like Marilyn Monroe sat at yeah sure and it's like that stuff does add a little something 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm the first person to fall for that stuff. I think that's why I write about it is because um, I love falling for it. And I also love knowing that it's, you know, it's a charade. I grew up in, in Massachusetts and I had never been to Los Angeles. And I would have said, I mean, my whole teenage years, I was like, when I grow up, I'm moving to LA, you know, because I... I wanted to be a part of where all these things happen. Even you saying, you know, Palm Springs and, and Marilyn Monroe. Immediately when I think of Palm Springs, I think, oh, Frank Sinatra in the 60s and the palm leaves and the stucco and I got to go. You know, yes. I, I got to write something there because it is very evocative. This, this, you know, the stories that were told in our culture during certain periods of time that we can't go back to. I'm a, I'm a big... Um, sucker for for some good nostalgia yeah so I wanted to ask you about how you wrote this book because I've interviewed a lot of authors and sometimes people say you have to like gather and gather and gather and like just have it all kind of stored in your head and then you kind of binge write or did you write and research like as you go yeah so I'm not nearly organized enough to have done one or the other. I sort of did both. Every time I'm writing something that takes place um, somewhere else or in a different time, my plan is essentially to spend a month researching. And so I buy all the books and I get my list of uh, movies that I'm going to watch. And uh, a lot of times I will buy old copies of magazines on eBay. Um, So for this, I bought about 20 copies of Rolling Stone from the 70s um, through like the early 80s. Um, and I get all that ready and I get my very special journal that's different for each book. And I, I'm very neurotic about like the journal has to evoke the theme for me in some way, even if it's very subtly. Um, and I make this journal of information and I tag all of my books with different color coded tags and all this stuff. And I say, okay, I know sort of who my people are. I know how, you know, where I'm going to set this. I, I have my base of information. And then as I start writing, I realize I don't have any information that I need because I was very focused on, you know, these details that aren't really relevant and the ones that are relevant, I didn't go find. So, (laughs) um, so that's when the research during the process of writing begins. And, you know, I'll still be researching in the last draft. It, It, you know, it'll be like, oh, I need to move this scene to a different place so it feels a little bit different. You know, what's a place I haven't gone to before? And then I'm still I'm still mm-hmm. on a Wikipedia deep dive, I feel like, even the last day of writing. Do you ever do that thing where you Google something quickly and then you're like, oh, God, I've been in this, like, Google hole for oh an hour? Oh, my God, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Like, one, I, I always write books about something that I'm interested in, a time and a place that I want to go to. So... The information is fundamentally interesting to me. So that means I can lose myself in it very quickly. But also, if I have to stop writing so that I can research something, if I can convince myself I need further research, I don't have to go back to writing as quickly. And I can really um, I can really talk myself into needing a lot of research if I'm feeling like it's a day where the words just aren't coming. Um, that's part of what is is difficult about this is where when does the research need to stop and the writing need to begin um because you know there are times when i'm like i don't know if i need this i don't need to watch this movie i want to watch this movie (laughs) um and you have to say well you know what you don't need to right now and you need to go right because there's two 
uh, characters, one of which being the main character, Daisy, and then Billy, who's, you know, that they write music together and yeah. it's like this kind of sexual tension musician partnership thing. And I know people have asked you already about, you know, any inspiration behind them, but it seems like it's not... Um, specific to a certain band it's like lots of people in bands have fallen out and got together and broken up again and are there any favorite stories yeah well you know what it's it's not based on any certain band it's um it's based on like 15 bands and i pull from each one and then when those things are no longer um helpful to me i create out of thin air and um and the other thing is a lot of the when I'm talking about this book, a lot of the focus has been on romantic rock couples. Um, you know, I talk about obviously Fleetwood Mac and and um, Johnny Cash and Gene Carter, or people like that. But the other thing that, that I don't talk about as much and I really should because it was it is such an inspiration is, uh, you know, bands like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Like, yeah, there were no women in those bands. But when you look at the relationship between John Lennon and Paul McCartney, an incredibly complex relationship that that you know this idea of where does one person's art begin and the and the other end and and it being very difficult to define um that's a big part of this the rolling stones like mick jagger and keith richards love each other and hate each other and they trash each other in public and then they take it back and they you know the things that keith richards says about mick jagger in his biography are terrible um and and they, at the end of the day they're still in a band together um i find that really fascinating the eagles you know had so much turmoil within the band um that it was really interesting to see the way when power dynamics are different mm-hmm. you know the lead singers obviously have more um social power than the bassist or the the you know rhythm guitarist often will and to to watch the the frustration within the band and and the pettiness and the bitterness come out um is is really fascinating with any kind of creative collaboration like being competitive and being jealous of each other it's just it's so relatable oh yeah well and like look like anytime you're creating something um as a team the whole point is the collaboration and the point is just make the end goal great but once the end goal is great if people don't feel as if they're being fully respected for what they contributed to it Mm. that's something that you can't untangle because it's very very subjective the art is subjective who contributed to the art in what way is subjective um, and and so I think it anytime you have a situation in which no one's really right or wrong, you're in a good space. And I think the creation of music and who gets to claim who did what is one of those spaces. Mm, it's so true. I remember watching the Oasis doc and they they pushed out the drummer or something. They were like, oh, you're not in the band anymore. And it's like, imagine how that must feel so crushing. Well, that's the thing too, is like all of these stories of rock bands and the turmoil within them are things that we read about and inquire about for fun but think about what it must feel like to live it you know think about what it feels like to be stevie nicks and to have lindsey buckingham write go your own way and claim that all you want to do is shack up which at this you know at the time was like a pretty mean thing to say you know about a woman 
and stand there on the stage and watch him sing it over and over and over. You know, mm-hmm. eventually you come desensitized to it, I'm sure. But that is what part of what this book is about for me is that these things seem so fascinating and so juicy, but someone had to live them. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm definitely guilty of it where I'm fascinated about what happened between, you know, this band or that band. And I'll be like, well, I bet this happened. And I should shut my mouth because these are real people's lives, you know, mm-hmm. and people have to live this pain. And it may be juicy or drama filled from the outside, but like the times in my life that have been the most juicy or like interesting to someone else have been horrible to live through. Yeah, and it makes you really think, you know, when, when people talk about the drama of like the drugs and the alcohol and the late nights, and it's like that is all, also someone's life. I mean, addiction is is this weird thing in our society where if you do a certain amount of drugs, you're super cool. And then if you do a level of drugs above that, you're really pathetic or something. And it's like, none of those are right. You're, mm-hmm. They're not cool and it's not pathetic. This is a disease. This is something that is plaguing our society. And, and we need to look at how we treat celebrities then because yes. we're Why driving them to- drugs, you know? And, and look, like I've had, um, I've had like, I'm, I'm like the biggest teetotaler on the planet. Like I, even in high school, I was like, I didn't drink at all in high school. And I, I've smoked pot once and I'm not totally sure if I got high. Like my brother makes fun of me all the time. I'm just, you know, not, that's not my world. Um, but I'm on tour right now and I'm not sleeping enough. And if I get sick, it doesn't matter. I need to show up and do this event because there's tickets that have been sold. And I'm like, you know, I'm going, well, I, I have to go to sleep right now, regardless of the jet lag, because I have to wake up at whatever time to catch whatever plane. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to take this sleeping pill. I mean, it's over the counter at the airport store, but you know, and, and, and then I'm like three days in of like, I have to take this, this pill that I bought at the airport store. And then I have to wake up and I need caffeine because I haven't slept enough. So now, you know, and this is like a very mild version of that because I'm such a, um, a baby but if i thought drugs were not scary i would be on five different things so that i could be whatever version of Mm -hmm. myself i needed to be at any given time so i could be tired when i needed to be tired i could be up when i need to be up and um rock stars are asked on a regular basis even today to go from city to city to be constantly traveling to put on the greatest show of their life every night Mm -hmm. because they want to give each person that experience. You know, I I don't know, like what happens when Mick Jagger has a cold? I I don't think he can cancel the show. And if you found a drug that made you like, you know, your best self and your funniest self, I mean, you you know, maybe it's like a one-off that actually did that and then the rest is awful, but But you you would chase that again. I mean, why not? Practically speaking, with what we ask of famous people, and especially rock stars, what choice do we give them but to artificially induce some sort of mind state for themselves? They can't be human. They can't have human needs. They can't need to sleep. They can't need to rest when they get sick. They can't, any of those needs, um, we're asking them not to have because Mm. I paid however much money for this show and I don't wanna see Mick Jagger half-ass it. Yeah. Um, And And that's just not fair to ask of people. 
Totally. And there's still a similarity between, you know, what you're doing in a way, even though it's much milder and yes, full of like, milder, you know, yeah. bottles of water. And, yeah. But the extreme, and, I, and I'm kind of fascinated by this, like the extreme difference between being a novelist, sitting at home, writing these incredible stories that are so in your head versus going on Good Morning America. And I know it's expected of authors now and it sells books. And the way you're promoting this book is incredible. But I just wondered, like, how is that for you? Do you, I mean, I'm guessing you enjoy writing more, but... Yeah, much more. How is, how is that tour? Do you just kind of think, right, I've got to sell this book for a bit and then I'll get back to my writing? Yeah. So they're very, very different skills. And I don't think that they go hand in hand. I don't think that the desire to sit at your computer alone for months and work out your thoughts into a story and succeed at that, that takes a certain number of skills. I think almost none of them are, in the Venn diagram of like the skills that that takes and the skills that it takes to stand up in front of a certain amount of people and talk about your book or talk about why you wrote it, the skills of going on Good Morning America, you know, I don't think any of those skills are the same. And I've been fortunate in that I don't, naturally like attention but I can convert in front of people into a version of myself that can thrive in that situation and I'm very fortunate and I feel fortunate because there are a lot of incredible writers who can't kick into that gear or really really don't want to and their books are fantastic and so what are the books that we're not reading? Because the people that wrote them um, aren't primed to go on Good Morning America or don't have a version of their of themselves that they can sort of turn on and, and become a person that can go on Good Morning America. What are those books that I don't know about because the person's not doing a press tour? And I think that's the, that's the other piece of this is yes, we ask a lot of Mick Jagger. And yes, I do think we ask a lot of writers now, but you do it and Mick Jagger does it because you get paid. On the one hand, we ask a lot of artists, commercial artists in particular, we also give a lot to commercial artists. And so it's a give and a take. Mick Jagger makes a lot of money, lives in a big house, he has money to do whatever he wants and, and, and a life that we could only dream of in certain aspects. Um, some of it to me, sounds like a nightmare, but it's a trade that he's making. I'm doing the same thing, right? I could say, well, I don't want to go on this press tour. I don't want to go on Good Morning America. Um, but, uh, and so I'm not going to, and my book sales suffer. But I want to get my book out to as many people as possible. I want to talk about it in the hopes that one more person who hasn't heard about it might read it and have that experience. And so I'm out here doing it. So it, it is, you know, it's not all one thing we have, there's just a lot of attention that goes to um, rock stars and actresses and and all, you know, these people that we um, respect and admire in our society. And so we give them a lot and then we ask a lot. The Mm -hmm. problem comes when um, they're used to how much we've given them and then we take it away because we're not interested anymore. Um, and that's a part that really fascinates me too and something that I haven't written about yet. But um, 
there's a there is a half-life to fame which i think is really interesting Mm. and you're told you're so great here's all this money you know you have these sycophantic people around you all the time making you think that nothing you've ever done is bad and then the public just gets sick of you but during that period of time in which you were famous you believed what everyone was saying my god like i can't imagine the pain that comes from when you inflate an ego like that and we're all responsible it's for really doing scary it. yeah it's not the person's fault for believing it like we made money off of them that's what was happening and so we told them anything that we wanted to hear so that we could continue to make money off of them and then when we couldn't make money off of them anymore we let them go and that is wild to me that we we still do that and we do that to women all the time there are so many pop stars who everybody was making money off of and then when they weren't cool anymore we just drop them like a bad habit. And then we make fun of them for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And and those are people. I think we always, always, always forget those are people just like us. Totally. And alongside that, the industry is changing so quickly. So you could be dropped and then go, oh, my God, like, what is Spotify doing? What is this thing doing? I don't have Instagram, like, or, or whatever these things are. And it's like this whole <clears throat> scary industry change. But I just wanted to say, because I think, what's amazing about you and your work is that you're writing a book every year i guess you've probably been artists a lot but like does that just take you know willpower or is it just something that you can't not do i think it's both i think i was i didn't realize it at the time but i think i was really fortunate when my first book tanked like it didn't tank but i mean i don't think expectations were high so you can't tank when no one's paying attention but i had a book come out and I was 29 years old, and I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going straight to the moon. I couldn't, I couldn't conceive of the idea that, that actually, like, I, I don't know the number, what, thousands of women are publishing books every year, you know, and no one's paying attention? I mean, men too. I don't mean to make it a gender thing. I just, it, you know, it came out during a period of time in which there was a boycott between my publisher and a major uh, bookseller. Like, I couldn't find my book. I, I thought, I'm going to go... I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble and see my book. And it wasn't there, you know. Um, And so the reaction to my book mattered a lot less to me than the work itself. And so I started getting emails over the course of that first year that it came out. And they were few and far between. But they'd say, you know, your book really meant a lot to me. Or it made me feel this. Or it made me realize that. And that's what mattered. Because that's what I had, you know. I wasn't wasn't successful in, in the, you know thousands of people at your book party way I just wasn't but I was a published author and I was so proud of that and so I just kept writing and my first book you know sold a little bit my second book sold a little bit my third book was was when things took off for me and bookstagram started finding me and then they would go back and read the other ones and that was great but by the time that happened I had already told myself the story of myself which was I'm here to do the writing. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I was here to get the attention, then I'd failed because it hadn't happened. And you would have stopped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's really, I think it ultimately was really good for me that it worked out that way because now, you know, I'm 35 years old. This is my sixth book. This is the first time that people have started to pay attention the way that they're paying attention to this book. My readership has grown over the years very organically and in this way that I'm incredibly proud of. And my sales up until now are something that I've been proud of. Um, And I'm writing books that I care about. This is the first time I've gotten the attention. 
now that I have the attention, I'm like, yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. It serves a purpose, which is to get people to read this book. What I'm doing right now um, is waiting for the attention to die down because I have another book to finish and it needs to be done in the next couple of months. And that's, that's what I care about. I love writing books. And because I love writing books as much as I do, and I want people to read them because I want to give people the experience of enjoying a book and my hope is that they will enjoy mine, that's why I do this. Mm -hmm. And that's why the attention is something that I feel quite neutral about because I mean, every, I guess everyone loves compliments. I do love compliments, but I don't write so that people will think I'm fabulous. I write in the hopes of making their life a little bit mm -hmm. easier. And so um, this the, the attention piece of it runs in some ways sort of parallel to what I'm trying to do. It's a, it's a useful tool, and so I'm using it. Um, but I will, I, I am most myself, uh, when I am writing. Mm. I, I'm really fascinated as well with the age in which you become well known, I think does affect you and would affect you because actually, like you're saying, you know, this book is everywhere at the moment. It is like hotly anticipated Reese with the Spoons turning it into a TV show. Apple just picked it as the yeah. best books. Like if imagine if this was your first book sometimes I think that must be so scary and overwhelming whereas it's like it seems like you can just enjoy this yeah well I have a perspective on it life works in funny ways and and you know when I was 29 and my first book came out and I wasn't uh you know an instant New York Times bestseller there was a hurt in there I didn't understand that there were things ways that I needed to grow and things that I needed to do in order to be able to receive um, the things that I was asking for. I'm receiving them now, and I'm receiving them in a totally different way than I was. Mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful for it, because when I look at, you know, the book um, just today, came a review came out in the New York Times. This is a first Congratulations. Time. Thank you. I've, I've never I been can't wait to read it in the New York Times before. And, and it's overall like a really glowing review, and there are a couple of moments in there where there's, there's like a, you know, a nod to like maybe the book is a little overly sentimental or 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 the the reviewer can't decide if the book is cheesy or not and um which which is a totally legitimate criticism like it's commercial fiction i'm i'm here to give you a good mm. time like i mean they said that about a star is born and it yeah, won an oscar exactly. so whatever that, that is exactly my feeling you know the things that i love most like i love commercial art i love things that make me feel in a certain way yes. and then i can go move on with my life i'm coming at this um you know i'm six books in i know who I am, I know what I've been writing. And you know what? Yeah, my books are sentimental. And I know that the New York Times is not gonna think that sentimentality is necessarily a good thing. And I know that I do think it's a good thing. And I feel really good about that. I feel good that um, there's there's maybe a difference in, in opinion that people can come to this book and have different feelings about it. And that if you had told me, you know, back in, in 2013 that I was sentimental, I would have said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, sentimental, you know, no. And then I would have created a whole narrative in my head of why they're misunderstanding me. And, and then I would have thought, well, I can't be sentimental the next time I was writing a book. It just, it just, it would have, I wasn't prepared to understand that 
I am who I am and you like me or you don't like me, mm-hmm. but I can't be tap dancing around and trying to make myself a certain type of person for every single reader. I, I, I'll fail. If I thought I'd succeed, I might try, but... I think that's a huge difference between being in your 20s and 30s as well, because I think in your 20s, you're just like, I don't really know who I am yet, really. So like, I'll try and please everyone. And then you just start being like, do you know what? I, I'm all right with who I am. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, I'm such a people pleaser. It's baked into my soul. And I think I spent a lot of time in my 20s just trying to please everybody, but failing. And when you fail to please everybody, which everyone has to, because you can't please everybody, you start to be like, well, you know what? It's actually not, it's not that bad when I didn't please you. Because I think you were maybe wrong for expecting that of me. And you start to, I don't know if it's that you're growing calluses or roots. I don't know what the best analogy is for it. And I'm, I'm, you know, look, I certainly, I'm on a journey. I certainly hope when I'm 40, I'm looking at the things now that sting me and going, oh girl, I guess, mm. don't worry about that, you know? Yes. Um, but I am okay with the things about myself as a writer that other people may consider imperfect. And that doesn't mean that I can't grow, but it does mean that I'm listening to the things people are saying that I don't want to be and trying to grow and be better at that. But I don't need to listen to the things that I do want to be and change because someone doesn't like it. Mm. Um, and that's where, you know, maybe the sentimentality or the cheese factor or whatever come in. Um, I'm okay being who I fundamentally am. There are things about the way that I'm writing. Look, five years from now, I'm going to look back on Daisy Jones on the six. I'm going to say, oh, I should have made it this or I should have made it that. You know, I'm always trying to be better. And if five years from now... I'm writing books that are not as good as Daisy Jones, then there's a problem. I have failed to challenge myself and failed to grow. So it's not about arriving at a destination and feeling like things are complete. It is about moving through each, I mean, certainly when I look at it in terms of books, like moving through each book and saying, what did I learn from this book to this book? Yeah. And being proud of that. Do you think that sometimes there is this like, criticism in a weird way that is there's undertones there of like well is something sentimental too feminine or is it that that you know when novels like I love a novel that's like slice of life just like Mm -hmm. domestic like Mm -hmm. nothing happens yeah and that's quite like maybe that's feminine because I want to know about what happens in the home or whatever and I always think of Elizabeth Gilbert and how people were so mean about Eat Pray Love Mm -hmm. and then suddenly she was a novelist and winning these awards and they were like now I can accept you Mm -hmm. and it's like well Eat Pray Love was was a brilliant bestseller Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying no you know exactly what you're saying (laughs) I I mean these are the thoughts that I live in day in day out and and I started my career writing what I didn't realize because I wasn't thinking of things in terms of gender because I did not realize how gendered publishing is. I'm mm-hmm. right. I was writing straight down the line what's called women's fiction, and I what I didn't understand was that if you're a woman and you write about women, then you're writing women's fiction because they're not going to advertise it to men. Even if they do, men will pick it up. I can't tell you how many men have come to get my book signed and made it very very clear to me this is for their wife. This is not, they're not going to read it. This is for their wife. Mm-hmm. I even, with The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which is different, had been different from the work that I was doing. And it was much, it had, it was a bit grittier and, and 
dealt with, with that's on my list to read oh, i can't oh, wait to read thank it thank you um it deals with a bit darker themes um you know that book's got a lot that's got teeth in it and um you know people were saying it's a beach read or um you know making making light of it or it's women's fiction or it's chick lit or you know and um and look i have no issue with the idea that my books are for women. They are. I'm writing for women. That's why I'm here. I'm I'm here to write about women for women to make it easier for at least one woman to be the type of woman she wants to be. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing and it's what I'm thinking about every day that I'm writing. So I'm not courting the attention of men, but I think it's absurd that we discount them mm. when we're writing about women. That's nuts. And men who write fiction, it's just fiction. And, and also, by the way, we train women from the day that they're born to understand that men's stories are important. Mm -hmm. And we train boys from the day that they're born to understand that women's stories are not relevant to your life. And when we talk about why there's an empathy problem, when we talk about why men don't understand women, you know, like, you know, this, this idea that, that women are so complex and men can't possibly begin to understand mm -hmm. us. It's like, well, you haven't tried. Read the books. Like, <laughs> you haven't read a single book about a woman is my guess. You know, you you probably don't watch television shows in which all of the main characters are women. Mm, so and, fascinating. And we've told men that they don't have to and that they shouldn't because those things are unimportant, because those things are fluff. And I started out, you know, when I started reading, I was reading Nick Hornby. I was reading Jonathan Tropper. I was reading men who wrote essentially women's fiction, but they were men, and so it's considered fiction. And I thought when I started writing, I was just writing a Nick Hornby novel, but it was with a woman. And what I didn't understand is no, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You have to be Nick Hornby, and you have to write about a man going through the exact same things, and then maybe somebody will respect it. And um, I think that we do men a great disservice when we tell them not to read books that have to do with the domestic space. Everyone lives in a domestic space. The domestic space is where you come from and where you go to at the end of whatever you're doing in a day. Mm -hmm. To not encourage men to read stories that live in terms of how to be a good husband, how to be a good father, how to engage with the people in his family, how to contribute to the, the welfare of the people that he loves, like, why is that not relevant to men? Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. I'm all, I also don't buy that it's not interesting. Like, I saw, my husband is such a feminist and he is such an incredible support of me. The majority of movies that he wants to watch are, are you know, versions of Die Hard. Um, but when Reese Witherspoon and Hell of Sunshine did Big Little Lies, that was the first time I saw him watching, effectively, a soap, a soap opera. And he was loving it. And he was eating it up. And there are scenes that are so personal and yet really political in that show, specifically when Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon are in the front seat of that car after they've just had this, like, big victory in a, like, not a courtroom, but, like, in a court setting. And they're like, oh, that felt so good. I love my kids, but I love to work. And I watched my husband watching it, and I watched him understand me a little bit better, mm. you know? Um, so I, I think it does make a big difference when men start to pay attention. 
so true and maybe the marketing of the books then it's like up to other people it's not just up to I mean it's never just up to the author to do that but I remember Jodie Picoult once saying and I can't remember the exact details but I think her book went out as a proof with like a black cover mm-hmm. with like hardly any details oh, on okay. it yeah. and it got like totally different reviews mm-hmm. that doesn't surprise me in the slightest I think so much is how we present things to men and what we make it safe for men to like right now you have to be an incredibly strong man who knows himself in order to pick up women's fiction because somebody's going to make fun of you. Somebody is going to assume something about you. And you have to say that you don't care what those people think. You're doing your thing. That's actually not that easy to do. Mm-hmm. It would be We would go a lot farther if we made books about women look like they're also for men. So that men didn't have to go through some identity crisis picking one up. So that they yeah. don't have to stand in line and make it clear to me, I would never read this. I just want to make it very clear to you. I mean... That's so fundamentally rude to walk up to a person and tell them you would never read their book. But men feel very comfortable doing that to me. And I don't think it's because they disrespect me, although I do think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. It's because it is that important for them to make it known to everyone that can hear them. I'm not going to read this book. I'm not mistaken about what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not weak. What they're saying is there's a girl on the cover of this book, Mm -hmm. so therefore it's embarrassing that I'm holding it. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I don't find, I find it, um, I find it insulting on a societal level. I don't blame the individual men. Um, I do, I have started pushing back a little bit um, a couple of years ago when The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo came out and she's, um, you know, sprawled across the front in this, in this dress and this guy, I was at um, BEA, which is book expo america it's a very big book conference and this guy comes up to me and he goes i'm getting the sign for my wife and i go oh that oh great you know what's your wife's name you know um, i'm like you know you could read it too and he's like I- i'm not gonna read it i was like you can totally read it and he's like i'm not gonna do that and i was like just because there's a woman on the cover and i wrote it doesn't mean that you can't read it and he's like i'm not gonna read it and i was like okay but you could read like i wasn't <laughs> gonna let it go and he just was getting more and more frustrated with me and i was just trying to be as nice as possible because look i'm gonna say that once you know, and then maybe six months from now, there'll be another book with a woman on the cover and someone will say, you could read it. You know, maybe we're all just going to have to tell this man a thousand times in a thousand different ways before he'll eventually do it. But I want to be one of those voices mm, saying that. Totally. And it sometimes it will go in like ever so slightly, maybe. And, and that's in the hope, future, right? they're like, oh, yeah. I'm actually doing it. I don't know. Um, I, oh my God, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I have a few more questions. Yeah. But um, I, I know a lot of people listening will probably be people potentially thinking I might want to change my career one day Mm. so I'm just going to take a little a little um turn on my question but what I found so interesting hearing you say in other interviews was that you used to be a casting director Mm -hmm. and the link that you were making so brilliantly between the fact that you were so fascinated in characters and that's what you were so good at you know placing characters knowing about characters and now you're writing the characters what what um else did you learn kind of being in that casting world like what was it like yeah so I knew my whole like college career that I wanted to be a casting director that was what I had decided and that made a lot of sense to me I was always really really interested in fame and Hollywood and I didn't want to be on set because it just seemed like chaos but I wanted to be in pre-production I wanted to be in the part where you decide Mm -hmm. what the movie's gonna be I worked for these two incredible casting directors Sarah Halley Finn and Randy Hiller um, who have gone on to do like truly incredible things and you know you, you have a little power and you don't have a little bit of power. It's a very interesting dynamic where um, actors really do want to suck up to you 
sometimes. And that can be difficult because I there were people that I thought, like I thought I was on a date with somebody and I was not on a date with that person. You know, it's like <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, but, and then at the same time, you know, there are, um, the director makes the final choice. So you're kind of caught in these two things, but the, but the women that I've seen and, and men that really thrive at it are people with incredible taste and, and um, intuition who are able to pick people out of a lineup and say, look what this person can do in this small example, mm-hmm. and I think it's gonna you know, blow up on the screen. It, it takes someone with just incredible and very specific talent to recognize talent and then pull it out and, and cultivate it. I find it to be a very fascinating job. And um, there are a lot of stars coming up during that time that you would they'd come in once or twice and and like i i didn't have an awareness the same way that my bosses did but they'd be able to say like that that person it's gonna not on this movie but it's gonna happen for her not in this movie but it's gonna happen for him and it's interesting to watch like some of those people their their careers have have thrived since then um what i found surprising was that I had exactly the job I'd always wanted. I was exactly, I mean, my first day of work, I was sitting down at my desk, I'm getting my new computer, my new phone set up or whatever, and I look out the window and I can see the Hollywood sign. And I thought, I've done it, you know? And I worked with incredible people and still there were times in a day where I would look around and i go, this isn't it. I I had, I was on the path to exactly what I wanted to do and so it was very hard for my brain to understand why I felt that way mm-hmm. because I'd say, well, no. I said I wanted to do this and this is what I'm doing. And look, there's a Hollywood sign and look, there's famous people there and, and this is what I want to do. But I don't know. There was something in my brain that was like, nope, it's not supposed to be this. I didn't want a nine to five. And once I figured that out, it was like, well, what am I good at that isn't a nine to five? And that answer took a really long time. And to mm-hmm. be honest, the, the realization that I wanted to be a writer that I liked doing it, that I might actually be good at it, and that I could do that from home. Um, it wasn't that welcome of a realization because it was like, oh great, now I have a massive hill to climb that mm. that a ton of people are also climbing and I may not get to the top. Um, and so I think it was like a hill that I was climbing and like I was just getting a little mm. bit further and a little bit further. Like you knew it was gonna be hard, but you were up for it. No, like the opposite. Like I wasn't up for it if it was going to be hard. So I told right. myself, well, just do this little piece mm-hmm. that you can do. Um, it was like it was like I, I was short sighted and that was the only way to do it. Um, and I really think for me in changing my career, it became less what sounds cool, what what feels legendary, what seems like I want to go to a party and say that I do that. Less that and more on the worst day of my career, what is it that I think I'd want to be doing? Mm-hmm. You know, on in the most mundane version of this job, when would I still be happy? And that was that was writing. And the other part of this, I suppose, is that if you just kind of went straight into writing, mm-hmm. I mean, your experience in Hollywood and being a casting assistant, like surely that's informed oh, a lot absolutely. of your books. Well, also, so it's never wait. None of these things are ever wasted. Never. And especially when you're a writer. If you're a writer and you're a writer straight out of college and you've done nothing else, what have you lived? What can you write about? You know? And I'm not saying that that no one that's just out of college has lived anything. I, I wouldn't have had anything to write about, personally. Um, you have to live in order to write. You have to form opinions. You have to be heartbroken. You have to 
you know, do all those things. And I think, you know, I don't know, a career with zigzags seems a lot more fun to me than a straight shot. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think maybe there's nothing wrong with needing to know that you could do something, but then when you get there realizing it's not what you wanted to do. I have a lot of friends who have felt that way. One thing they had in their head of who they wanted to be, but then they became that person and it wasn't enough or or what, or it was enough, but they needed something different or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Um, I, I think we always do ourselves a disservice when we tell ourselves who we are. And the more you can ask yourself who you are, um, the, the more you may get to where you want to go. It's so true. Like I had to go to Hollywood and I had to be in that in order to tell myself it wasn't everything. I'm here. I feel very happy in my success. I feel proud of what I've done. I've written six books in six years. Um, it's not what matters, you know? Like my kid is what matters. My husband's what matters. My family's what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the luxury of, of satisfaction in order to be able to say that. Um, but it's just one piece of you mm. in your career. It's not you. It's just one piece of you. And that's a thing that I'm on. I'm, I'm learning that right now as I unlearn, you know, this idea that I've just defined myself for so long. So did I you did. have a period of time where career was everything? Because I mean, I've, I've, def- yes, I've, as of yesterday, I've definitely <laughs> yeah. had those moments where I think, yeah, wow, I'm a hundred percent pinning my worth right now on this successful thing I've just done. Absolutely, I have spent so long telling myself, well, no matter what else, I'm a writer, I'm a published writer, and that means X, Y, and Z. It means nothing, you know. It means I publish some books and people want to read them, and that's great. But does the fact that I publish them make me any different than than a writer who hasn't been published? Does it mean my book is better? No, it means more people have read it. And that gets me to the real point of why I do anything, which is I'm doing it so you read it. I'm doing it so that maybe you'll like it. The books that I have read that have changed my life have been books that have shown me something about myself, that have made it a little bit easier to be myself by being an example of myself that I can see or by having nothing to do with me, but were so interesting and captivating that I forgot who I was for a minute, which is a delicious feeling. And that's all I've ever wanted to do. So when me and my opinions about how successful or not successful I am get in the way of remembering that that's why I'm doing this, that's a problem. I don't need or shouldn't measure my success on how many people like me or how many people buy my books. It should be based on how I make people feel when they read the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm talking right now like this is very easy for me to know both emotionally and logically. I know it logically. I'm learning it emotionally. Um, But the point of writing for me is giving you an experience that makes your life easier in one way or another. That's the only reason that I'm doing it. Mm. And um, I, I am working very hard now to remember that, that, that that's why I'm talking now to you in the hopes that, you know, this makes some, you know, someone reads this book and it makes that their life a little bit easier. That's why I'm going to Tampa on, on Monday and, and Miami on Tuesday and Omaha on Thursday or, you know, whatever it is. Like, 
it's that yeah you know and 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 that makes everything more enjoyable for you as well because you have a purpose you have a reason and it's actually very simple and it's one that i feel very good about you know if we're here to leave the world a little bit better and you know that this is how i'm trying to do that Mm. and so um that that's not something you measure in numbers or any of that stuff and so when i do get caught up in the idea of like defining myself by my career i just try to remember that it's not that that stuff doesn't doesn't really matter very quickly lastly because we're in california and um i'm doing this podcast series around how amazing it is here i just wondered you've been on tour you go to so many different places but why why live here oh that's easy for me um i will never leave because of the weather um and because i i came here because of the myth of los angeles and yet los angeles is not a place of myths it's a real place and it's heartbreak and dingy and just as ugly as it is beautiful and all those things i stay because i found my family here you know i met my husband here he's from here my in-laws live five minutes Mm -hmm. down the street my grandmother-in-law lives six minutes down the street um this is where my family is and this is this is home and has been home for generations to the people that i love so um even if it starts snowing here i'm not gonna leave i love that because you see the real the real deal i came here for a myth and i'm staying because of reality and they look very very different my Mm. life here is lovely but it's very different than i envisioned and i think if you'd shown me it when i was 20 you know thinking that this was where um you know the the roads were paved with gold i'd be like oh that's all it is i just I just grow up and I write books and I live in that house with these people and I'd be like, you don't understand. Like, it's nothing like the myth. It's it's real. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I stay and I will stay because of the people that I love. Love that. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thank, thank you for you. having me. Thank you. Thank you.